Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you that you've called us to meet with you and to meet together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We open your pages of scripture together, Lord. We come hungry. We come desiring to know you and the power of your resurrection and the strength that you provide as we become fellow sufferers along the way. Lord, we thank you for the light that you shine for our path. Lord, we want insight into these verses this morning, so we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would give us tender hearts that would receive your word like a seed planted in fertile soil. God, we pray that you give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. Strengthen our hands for service that our work in this world would be as your very own. And Lord, we pray that a word of life and hope and love would be found on our tongues. This is our prayer in the strong name of the Trinity. And we pray together saying, Amen and Amen. Friends, please be seated and take your Bibles. Today we begin a new sermon series titled Squeezed. Uh, looking at the first 21 verses in the 12th chapter of Romans. We'll look at this passage again and again over the next uh, three weeks. A few years ago, I was in a conference that was being led by Craig Barnes, who's now the president of Princeton Seminary. Uh, uh, He was a pastor at the time, and he told a story. He said, I, I was speaking to one of my mentors, and he said to me, pastors really only have three sermons. They'll preach from a thousand different texts, but when you boil it down, most pastors just have three sermons. He said, I didn't know that if I believed him, so I went back to the leadership of the church, and I said, do I have three sermons, just three sermons? From all the texts that we read from, do I preach just three sermons? And they looked at him, and they said, oh, no, you've only got one sermon. (laughs) You've just got one. Uh, A couple of things from that. Uh, Pastors do not know uh, our sermon text. We don't know this about ourselves, but those that listen to us do. Further evidence, when I heard that, I went down and I pulled over my composition book. I buy cheap composition books, and I write in them little squiggly notes. And I sat down and I said, okay, Matt, what are your three messages? What are the core messages of your life? And, And I couldn't do it. And then I thought to myself, Matt, what was the message that your pastor preached your pastor preached when you were a boy. What was his message? And without hesitation, I began to write them down. And one of them, if I was to title it, would be called Squeezed. He preached this message from 45 different scriptural texts. But quite often, and I might have heard this 312 times in my upbringing, he would quote the paraphrase of Romans 12 too, the Phillips 
a paraphrase. And for those of you uh, young folks, J.B. Phillips was Eugene Peterson before Eugene Peterson was Eugene Peterson. The Phillips rendering of Romans 12, 2 is, Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Jim Brandon was my pastor in Meridian. Jim Brandon was Aaron Crushwitz's pastor in Colorado, and both of us have heard him quote that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. It was an image and a message that just seized his heart. You see, our pastor believed that we lived in a pressure cooker world. He believed that because we live in a pressure cooker world. And the old categories of the, the devil, the flesh, and the world push us and, and pressure us to live in ways that are not in concert with God's beating heart of love for us in the world. We're pressured on all sides to live uh, as worshipers of the idol of self. To go through the world grabbing and clawing and grasping and fighting. To go through the world making compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise. And building scaffolding around it to make it make sense in our own mind. Even as we try to peddle it in the earth. We're squeezed. We are squeezed. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I wish I could stand up and say to you that if you confess your faith in Christ, then it'll all go away. All the pressure will go away. No, because as we follow Jesus, we enter into the very midst of a conflict. And the pressure is real. Right now, this very second, every single last one of us are allowing ourselves to be shaped by outside forces. Now, there are hundreds of us that think we are autonomous selves, that we're doing it our own way, that we're living our life as Frank Sinatra would call us to. But at the end of it, we are all, every single breathing person in this room, allowing ourselves at this moment to be shaped by outside power. We're being squeezed by the world. And if we're followers of Jesus, we're being called by God to a different way. Romans 12, 1 through 21 helps us understand this new and better way. It helps equip us to push back this pressure. It helps us to lay ourselves as a lump of clay on the potter's wheel and ask God to shape us. There are principles in these 21 verses that we'll discover over the next three weeks. Call us to life in God. The life that is really living. We'll look at three simple little commands. Today we'll look at the command, do not conform. We'll look at the command, do not be conceited. We'll look at the call, do not curse. We'll look at those over the next three weeks. But we begin... We began with this beautiful invitation to a, a lively nonconformity to living our life in a way that God would have us live it. So I want to go back and look at these two verses. We'll walk through them together. Give you some nails to hang your, hang your thoughts on. We'll walk through it together. So pull out your number two lead pencil. We'll go, we'll go through it together. I highly encourage you this week, read all of Romans. It's not that tall of an order. Read all of Romans, maybe twice. But hunker down 
on these 21 verses in chapter 12. Again, let's remind ourselves of these, these words. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. What we have here is we have a motive We have a motive for living our lives in concert with God's heart for us. We have a motive uh, for turning our backs on this call to conform to the ways of the world. And the motivating factor here is a vision of the mercy of God. The first 11 chapters, Paul proclaims the gospel. He talks about creation and he talks about sin. He talks about grace. He talks about faith. He talks about Israel and Jesus. He talks about wrath to come and liberty from that. He paints a picture of life as it is in the world, a life that is blessed by God as God created us and said, this is good, a life that has been marred by our own sin and failure, a life that has, that has received the reign of God's mercy and kindness. And Paul in these chapters lays out the beautiful image of God. He gives us an image of his mercy. He says within that text, it is the kindness of God that leads you to salvation. With a beating heart and a pen in hand, he told the wild and ravenous story of God's abundant grace. And here, right here in this moment, he starts to tease out a very important implication. He says, in view of this mercy. And then he continues to speak. Thomas Erkson said that religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. You see, friends, in in these 11 chapters... Paul didn't say, you do this, 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 and you'll become healthy, wealthy, and wise. You do this, 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 and you'll become acceptable to God. There's not a person in this room strong enough to bear the burden of our own brokenness and shame and sin. For 11 chapters, he talked about the abundant kindness of God. And in light of this, our lives should be radically different than the mundane, common way most people go about living. Friends, that's not an arrogant statement at all. It should call us to broken-hearted humility and childlike enthusiasm and excitement. God is love. His grace is displayed on the cross. God is kind. He shouts that from the mouth of an empty tomb. And he shows himself to us. And this vision of his kindness is our motive. Write it down. It's right here. The second thing we need to think about is that Paul recognizes and calls us to a certain ministry. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to what? Present. To offer. To offer your bodies. Notice he didn't say offer your mind or your heart. 
I mean, it's not like we can say, okay, I'm going to think about God right up here in the top of my head, uh, and I'm going to love God in my mind, and God knows my, what I really want, uh, but what I'm going to do is a different deal. He gives this earthy, gritty language, this call to offer, kind of technical language. It's, it's, the, it's the action of a priest. He'd just been talking about Israel and Israel's role in salvation history and all that, all of that stuff. And here we have one more place in the New Testament where God's people are depicted as the priest of God. We talked about that last Sunday. We, we talked about that beautiful image uh, as God's people are worshiping the lion, lamb, savior who is inhabiting heaven, uh, the, the victorious one. Uh, and how those who are worshiping there, they're called a kingdom of priests. We highlighted last week that the roles of the priests are to intercede on behalf of people and to speak to people for God. There's also another critical thing in the job description of a priest, and that's the offering of sacrifice. And here we have this ministry that we're called to as disciples of Jesus, the kind of ministry that pushes back these squeezing forces and shapes us into the likeness of Christ. And that ministry is the ministry of the priest. And, and we, we champion the priesthood of the believers as Baptists. And sometimes what we mean by that is, I'm going to do what I want to do and don't mess with me. That is a caricature of a very sacred and beautiful doctrine. Here is the priesthood of the believer, and it's the call to lay a living sacrifice on an altar before God. I've witnessed animal sacrifice. I was in a little village in India. They sacrificed a goat. When a sacrifice is made, friends, it's total. It's total. And here's the language that we as the priest of God are called to offer this very oddball, strange sacrifice ourselves. That we are to again and again lay ourselves before God. Say, God, here I am. My work, my dreams, my passions, my relationships. Here I, here I am. Friends, when you start to think of yourself as a priest, your identity changes almost completely. You go from thinking of yourself of a run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of person to someone in this sort of unique and, and beautiful relationship with God. A number of years ago, I was invited by one of my friends to come and help officiate a funeral service in Crowley, Louisiana. Crowley is in the heart of of Cajun country. English is the second language in Crowley behind Patois French. It's going to be at this large Catholic church and my friend, his father's name was Andras Du Henry. Isn't that a wonderful name? Well, we were going to go lay Du Henry to rest and his son invited me to be part of this. We'd grown very close and he said, now Matt, when you come, I, I don't want you to stand out. We don't have many Baptist preachers around here. I don't, I don't want you to stand out. And we kind of talked about what that meant. So I went by the Cokesbury bookstore the Methodist bookstore, and I bought a clerical collar. Uh, and the first time in my life, I wore one. I thought about going and have my driver's license photo retaken <laughs> with, with, with it on. But they wouldn't let me do it. I called. Um, 
But I put the collar on, and, and Meredith and I, we drove down to Crowley in the heart of Cajun country, and, and we went, and we, we got there early, so we went and had lunch on, on the little downtown square in Crowley. I didn't know why the ladies were mad at me, the old ladies of Crowley. Uh, I was walking around holding the hand of my young bride, and uh, they weren't accustomed to seeing their priest with girlfriends. Uh, so, so, so I was blowing it right out of the bat. You know, I should have dressed like a Gideon or something. I'd have been less conspicuous. But I get down there, uh, and when I wasn't around her, when I, was, when I wasn't around her, people would, would say, Father, come sit here. And let me ask you. And they'd ask me to pray for them. And, and they looked at me different than everybody else. And, uh, and after a while, I started to feel different. And, and I didn't feel at all cocky or arrogant. What I felt was a weight of responsibility. We are called. Every single follower of Jesus, we're called. We're called to the life of the priesthood. And it changes our identity and it changes our function when we feel it in our bones. It changes it changes our ministry. And friends, we're all called to the ministry. The ministry of intercession. The ministry of sharing with others the hope that we have within us. The ministry of laying our lives, living sacrifices, our bodies on the altar. Chuck Kelly used to say to us as young seminarians, the problem with living sacrifices is we keep crawling off the altar. So every day, every day, it's a, an opportunity to renew this sacred calling to the ministry, the ministry of the priesthood. Paul gives us a, a motive. He gives us a ministry. And friends, he gives us a, a model, and it's sort of tucked in here. John Stott, in his beautiful little commentary on, on these verses, he said, We human beings seem to be imitative by nature. We need a model to copy and ultimately, there are only two. There is the world, literally this age, which is passing away. And there is God's will, or God's way, which is good and pleasing and perfect. This is a text about a very real conflict. It's a conflict between two ways of life. The way of life characterized as the way of this age or this world, uh, a way that God has judged and said, enough of this, a way that is going away, a way that's going away, and the way of God. The way of the cross and the empty tomb, the way of Pentecost in the church, the way of God's grace. There are two ways, God's and the world's. And again and again and again in the Scripture, we're called to choose. We're called to pick. We're called to decide who we're going to serve and how we're going to serve. Jesus said, don't do it like they're doing it. Moses coming down the hill, don't do it like they're doing it. Two ways, two models, and we have to pick. So friends, don't think there's some third path. Don't think you can get around it 
by being so creative and so wise that you trump the system. Nobody trumps the system. There's two models. There's two ways. One judged by God and one blessed by the resurrection. And we're all imitative by nature. And the toughest of us in the room, the toughest in the room, we think we have forged our own way. All of us at this very moment are allowing some outside power to shape our life. You have to choose your model. So you have your motive. You have this ministry we're called to. You have this model laid out before us that, that shows us the, the alternatives. And, and finally, I would say it like this. Uh, Paul gives us in these two verses a method. That method would be the renewing of your mind. He said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You say, Paul, that's great. How do you do it? Well, he doesn't say it right here, but he says it in his other letters, and it's, it's all over Scripture. He calls us to a way of life that's connected intimately with the Spirit of Jesus and the Word of God. How does God mold and shape us? How does God renew our mind? God takes the Spirit and the Word, and God comes into our life, and He pulls out those chunks that don't need to be there, and He brings in those features that do need to be present. He makes something good and beautiful and useful out of our lives through the molding influences of the Word and the Spirit. One of the greatest, one of the greatest challenges to being shaped and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And one of the reasons why we are squeezed so much into the pattern of the world around us is because we have forgotten these key resources given to us by God in His abundant grace. And we think that at the end of it all, we must decide for ourselves. That we're autonomous selves. And that our experience is sovereign. It's one of the great scandals of our faith as we know it in North America today. I don't want to sound reactionary, but we've got to fall in love with Jesus again. And we've got to learn how to read the scripture again in such a way that the spirit shapes us from inside out to become more and more like him. That's just the truth of it. And it's never going to change. Thank God. I mentioned Eugene Peterson earlier. I'll mention him again. Uh, I love his little book, Eat This, Eat this Book. It's a book about the spiritual reading of Scripture. Uh, the metaphor is, is, is there. Eat this book. I like that. Ingest the Scriptures. Get them in your heart uh, so that there is power to change you. Listen to what he says. He says, eat this book is my metaphor of choice for focusing attention on what is involved in reading our Holy Scriptures formatively. That is, in such a way that the Holy Spirit uses them to form Christ in us. We are not interested in knowing more, although we are, but in becoming more. The task is urgent, he writes. It is clear that we live in an age in which the authority of Scripture in our lives have been replaced by the authority of the self. We are encouraged on all sides to take charge of our lives and use our own experiences as the authoritative text by which to live. 
The alarming thing is how extensively this spirit has invaded the church. How more or less expect the unbaptized world to attempt to live autonomously, but not those of us who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When God wants to shape us and mold us into the likeness of Jesus, he calls us back to the word and the power of the spirit. And he puts his gracious and kind and strong hands on us. And he shapes us. He transforms us. And we're invited, we're called to submit to those, those forces of his grace. And if we reject that, we simply get squeezed by the forces all around us. Walter Brueggemann calls our life as disciples of Jesus. He says we have an odd baptismal identity. We're marked with an odd baptismal identity that we proclaim that we have died to self uh, and that we live because Christ died and, and we're raised with him to walk in the newness of life. This great drama of life with God. I'm still wet. My cuffs, my sleeves. I've been in the water this morning and we've relived that image of life with God, a renewed life with God. How does God shape us? He shapes us as we submit ourselves to living out our odd baptismal identity. Submitting ourselves to His truth and to the whisper of His Spirit in our life that calls us to His transforming touch and grace. When I was in the second grade, we were given take-home papers, signed papers. Remember signed papers? I still get a little nervous about signed papers. I learned, I learned early on in the second grade because I was a criminal mastermind. I might have been a little older. Let's say I was in the, no, I was in the fifth grade. Fifth grade. A second grader couldn't have pulled off what I tried. They'd send these signed papers home. And uh, I would take out the bad ones, have my parents sign them, and re-staple them. Now at the Poplar Springs Elementary School, the worst grade goes on top. They learn from me. I was a terrible criminal. My staples never lined up just right. Teacher knew my mom, and finally she called. She called my mom. She says, your son is a cheat. She didn't say it quite that bluntly, but that was the, that was the message. And, uh, and I came home one day, and, uh, and I saw the face of my mother, and it was set like granite. And uh, my mom, she could be a hard woman. Uh, and the day that I came home with that, she said, Now, Matt, I want you to sit down. She put me down at the end of the table, and she put loose-leaf paper in front of me, and she gave me a pen, not a pencil. I was accustomed to it. She gave me a pen. I think that's why I still love the number two lead pencil, because that, that pen changed me. She said, Matt, I want you to write a letter to your teacher, to yourself, okay, it's getting deep, and to God. I thought she was God. I wasn't real sure. <laughs> about what you did and why you did was wrong. And so, you know, I went through that exercise with my mom. Uh, my dad comes home that night, bone weary. I hear the truck door slam. He comes in the door. 
And uh, he has another approach. He just said, Matt, let's go for a ride. I said, he's going to kill me. <laughs> and so all the important matters of life, you know, were discussed in the cab of my dad's pickup truck. We, we went out riding in his S10 pickup truck, also the first truck I ever got to drive. Do you remember that feeling, the first truck, you, car you ever drove? So we were, this is a sacred place. That car is collecting rust somewhere in a pile probably or it's turned into a soda can, but it was a sacred place. It was a thin place, you know, as the Irish would say. And Dad just looked at me, and he said, Matt, a couple, couple months ago, you were baptized. That's got to mean something. And that was the end of it. That was the end of it. How does God shape us? God calls us back to that weird, oddball identity we've got, the one of death and resurrection. He calls us to that over and over, and over, and over again. He called us to lay our life down before Him, trusting Him with our lives, sowing a seed of faith, knowing that He can do more with us than we can do in our own scheming. Do not conform. In two verses... In two verses, he gave us a motive, he gave us a model, he gave us a, he gave us a method, he gave us a ministry. Now it's up to us. Now it's up to us. Through the strength and the grace he provides. God, we thank you so much for a chance to worship you in this room. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you are, are stubborn and relentless in your love, Lord. And that as we walk with you and... And as we take our life back and try to be the, the Lord and master of it and make messes of it, that you and your kindness continue to come and you come and you come for us. Lord, we thank you for that. Today, Lord, I pray that it's a day of renewal for all of us as we, as we offer ourselves up as priests before you. As we do it uh, for your glory, for our good, for the good of, of other people. Lord, I pray for those in this room that that for them, this is just really weird talk. That what is this about? But there's something stirring in their life that, that may even make them want to say, please help me understand this. Lord, I pray for all those that you're drawing to yourself and all of, all of those of us that you're working in our hearts. Help us through the Spirit, Lord, to be different for having been here in worship today. Different and better because we're more like Jesus. Lord, as we stand and sing, seal these, these truths in our hearts through your spirit, we pray. Amen and amen. Friends, please stand. Let's sing this hymn of commitment together.